Welcome to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast, where storytellers have a chance to bite it live. This event is the summer finale and includes the season's Story Slam winners. It was recorded on August 24th, 2015 at Payamet Performing Arts Center in Truro, Massachusetts. Tonight's host is Joe Richmond of Radio Diaries, and the theme for the evening is Pandora's Box. And without further ado, I want to introduce our very special host who helped us out quite a bit last year and hosted this event for us um, last year as well. So um, he is Joe Richmond. Hello. Um, okay, a couple thank yous, first of all, because... Um, Caitlin and Vanessa created this out of nothing last year, and it's been wildly successful, and here it is in the second year of the grand finale, and so it's just amazing to create something out of nothing, and thank you, Caitlin and Vanessa. Let's have a hand for them. And also to, um, to Kevin Rice and Payomat, this is just my favorite venue in the world, so um, thanks for hosting this. So you know uh, about the theme, Pandora's Box, you know about the prompts. What you may not know, is that tonight is also a bit of a test. It's a test of a theory, a theory about boxes, a theory about curiosity, about mystery, and about what makes a story a story. And I'm gonna start off by, probably a lot of you, some of you may know who J.J. Abrams is, um, TV producer, film producer. Um, he was one of the creators of Lost. He did, he'd done a lot of films recently, Mission Impossible films, Star Trek films. Cloverfield, Super 8, well-regarded, successful films, most of which I have not seen. But what I have seen and loved was his TED Talk. Maybe some of you have seen that. Um, if so, you'd be the 2,800,000 and something. Anyway, you're not alone. And in his TED Talk, his TED Talk is about, um, it's about boxes, and it's about whether to open them or not. So what he does, he, he talks about this, um, when he was a kid in New York, he used to go to this old magic shop, and one time he bought what, what he called what was called a mystery box. It was just this, this this brown box with a question mark on it, sealed, and he didn't know what was inside until you got home and opened it. And you know, it was most likely a magic trick of some sort, but it could be anything. It could be some treasure, it could be junk, it could, you know, who knows? And but that was it. You didn't know. And he talks about mystery boxes in terms of it's like a movie theater. He says it's like, you know, the you know, the expectation of going to the movie theater and of the whole movie is sometimes the best part is when the lights go down. Um, so the amazing part of, of his talk, which, which I love, is that he says 35 years later, after he was a kid and got this magic box, 35 years later, uh, he still hasn't opened it. <laughs> he said to open it would, um, would break the spell, would take away his power, and unopened, it's this infinite possibility, you know, hope, potential. So, um, I mean, I love this because, you know, I think about stories all the time, and, you know, how much do you tell, how much do you not tell, what's enough, whether to tell, whether not tell. I think these are all really interesting questions. And a couple years ago, I had a chance to test this theory um, on myself. And it was, uh, it was late at night on, uh, on a beach with my friend Jonathan, who's here tonight. Where are, you, where are you, Jonathan? Okay, out there. There he is, Jonathan. So we were actually just about 10 miles from here, Race Point Beach, late at night. Um, I will tell you that there may have been brownies involved. <laughs> and um, we were... <laughs> we, were, we were at this beach late at night, um, just looking at the stars, kind of waiting for a shooting star or something, chatting. And, and we did see a shooting star, the most amazing shooting star, this bright shooting star that kind of went across the sky. 
Um, but then it did something strange. It, it, it stopped and went back like that, which was weird. But then the weirdest thing was that it did it again, went across the sky, stopped, and went back. So at this point, um, you know, I, I was freaking out. I'm, I'm, I'm a journalist. I'm a man of logic and reason. I need to figure out what this was. So I was going through, you know, it's okay. It doesn't behave like meteor dust. It's, doesn't, it's not moving like a plane or a planet or a satellite. You know, is this like a weather balloon, like an optical illusion? You know, had a bird swallowed a flashlight? Um, so I'm going through these list of possibilities. And uh, at this point, the star is kind of like, it's doing like a circle. So it's, doing, it's like starting, you know. And, um, and this was, you know, I realized this was an unidentified flying object. It was like, is, am I actually seeing a UFO, an official UFO? Is this, this, is this that moment? Um, so meanwhile, I'm, I'm being driven crazy by this. Um, and I look over at Jonathan. Jonathan is, a, is an artist, he's a painter. And his take was basically, this is so beautiful. <laughs> and he was just, he was enjoying the show of it as I was um, going a little bit insane trying to figure out what the hell it was. That was my question, what the hell is this? So anyway, after a while, we started um, walking back up the beach, mystery unsolved. And we were heading towards the path where the parking lot is. And we started to see this group of people right by the path. And they were looking at it too. It's like, okay, we're going to get some answers. Maybe they'll know. Going into this group of people. And so we get closer and closer. They're looking up at this UFO up there. And there's this um, guy sort of in front. And it's almost like, it feels like a weird religious thing. Because he has his arms up like this. Swaying, sort of. Um, and we get a little bit closer. And, you know, and... Then he's holding something, get a little bit closer. And then when we get really close, it's a dark night, he's holding these rings with these strings going up <laughs> towards the UFO, which I think you all know where I'm going now. Um, he, he had somehow managed to catch a UFO. <laughs> um, no, okay. No, it, it was a kite. It was a glow-in-the-dark kite, which I know that the real answer is just so kind of... Um, it's a letdown. <laughs> um, but... Um, and they were flying, so there it was. We, now we knew, this kite dancing up in the stars, and now we knew. So even years later, I still think about this because I have still have this unresolved question in my own mind about um, you know, which is better. Because John and I talked about this group of people, if they were 100 feet further down the beach, past where the, you know, the turnoff to the parking lot was, we wouldn't have seen them. And we wouldn't know to this day. And I, you know, like, so I could either be stuck with this, like, mentally itchy, torturous, um, unknowing, or maybe it would have been some lovely, slightly disturbing memory. I don't know. But so I asked Jonathan about it. I knew I was going to tell the story, and I told him I was going to tell the story, and I, I reminded him, you know, remember the night on the beach and the, the brownies and the, and, the, and the UFO and the, and, the and the kite? And his answer was, um, it was a kite? <laughs> no. no, actually, okay. That, that was a lie. He didn't say that. <laughs> I, I thought that was a funnier line. But, um, no, but what he did say was actually more interesting, actually. He, what he said was, okay, but we don't know it was a kite. And we don't really know. That's what he said. And I realized, okay, there are some people in the world who can hold on to the mystery of things despite the facts. <laughs> I know, and I think that's the most beautiful thing. I mean, maybe not in terms of like global warming and the Holocaust, and you know, like there's some examples, but I think in many cases it's a beautiful thing. So I'm going to test that theory. Okay, I'm ready for our prop of the evening. 
Ready. Um, this is a mystery box from Tannen's uh, Magic Shop in New York City. This is the actual mystery box. You can actually order one. You can go home tonight and order one yourself. Um, I don't know what's in it. I've, I, got, I ordered about a week ago, and my kids have been um, dying for me to open it for the last week. Um, actually, the tape seems to be a little bit... Well, anyway. Um, and at the end of the evening, we're going to take a vote. As long, uh, along with taking a vote of um, which stories, which is the, the winning story tonight, we're going to take a vote whether we should open this or not. Um, but of course, you know, this is just a, this is just a, a stand-in. This is just a metaphor, right? I mean, really, we have more important mystery boxes here tonight, right? You know where? Okay, look to the left, right? Look to the right. Okay, all, right? All of us. We're all mystery boxes. And some of us, you know, even were mystery boxes from our um, friends and family and lovers and ourselves. But deep in there somewhere, there are stories hidden somewhere. And tonight, we're going to hear nine of them. Nine of them. So, okay, before I just completely flog this whole mystery box thing completely to death, we're going to move on. And with our first story tonight, Everett Doninger. Hey, everybody. Um, so I have a, let's kind of start this on a down note now. I have a genetic disorder called cystic fibrosis. Um, I'm not going to go into the nitty gritty because I want all your stomachs to keep dinners down. Um, but what you need to know is that uh, it affects the lungs in a pretty serious way. Uh, and over time, uh, it uh, develops a lot of scar tissue. And eventually, you essentially run out of lung. Um, so... I generally was able to stay pretty healthy. Um, it, when I was born, my life expectancy was 18. Um, and so research has gone a long way. But uh, I was able to stay healthy, primarily with the help of my family. I mean, there is, there is nothing I wouldn't do for them, and there was nothing they didn't do for me. So I owe them absolutely everything. Um, to, so they, kept me, they really kept me healthy through my early years. And uh, I was able to get to college. Um, unfortunately, when I went to college, I was exposed to a bacteria called Mycobacterium abscessus. And uh, it infected my lungs, and I met with my doctors, and it turns out that there isn't a way currently to actually kill this virus once it's infected these lungs. So we were able to treat it a little bit and try to, try to suppress it, but um, you know, it really started to, to, it really accelerated the decline in my lung function. Um, so, you know, I was in and out of the hospital, and, and it was at this point that my, that my doctor said to me, you know, we really have to start thinking about, about transplant, because these lungs are not going to last you very much longer. Um, you know, I was on oxygen full-time. I couldn't work anymore. I, could, I certainly couldn't take three stairs up onto this stage. Um, so it was very, very hard. Um, transplant, when you go to visit these centers where they where they do these transplants, their job is essentially to get you to walk away. They, they don't want you to stay. Uh, as odd as that sounds, they basically take a packet and they throw it at you and it is filled with the, all the most horrible things that they could come up with about transplant because they don't want anybody there who's gonna waste their time and not have the grits and the guts to get through what it's gonna take. Um, and a lot of people walk away and that was a, that was a challenge that I faced um, you know, deciding whether this was something I needed to do. Um, but to be honest, um, I, really, I, really, I really didn't hesitate when it came down to it. Um, there's a lot that I need to do. 
that I want to do. And I don't mean a, like a bucket list. I mean like things that people do and, and are, they build throughout their lifetime. And my family would just have been devastated. Um, so I underwent it. I, uh, I was rejected at a lot of centers because of the bacteria that I told you about. Um, and I was fortunate enough to have Duke University accept me. Uh, so I moved down there, I entered their rehab program for many months, and I finally got on the transplant list. Uh, it was on a Wednesday. Uh, a day and a half later, I got the phone call that, I was, that there were lungs for me. Um, and so my sister, who was there taking care of me, um, we got in the car, we went right to the hospital, and about 1 a.m., they said, the lungs are good, and we're a go. Are you sure you're ready? I said, I'm, <laughs> I've been waiting for months for this, let's go. Um, <clears throat> so when I woke up, my mom had driven nine hours down from Connecticut overnight, and my mom and sister were over me, and they, they tell me that, uh, that the first thing I did was uh, reach down onto my leg and trace chicks dig scars <laughs> on my leg. Um, I, yeah, I don't really remember, it was pretty fuzzy, you know. Um, so... Uh, you know, it was, it was there in the ICU that I, that I really actually accelerated. I did really well, and they popped me over to step down, and then things got really hard for me. Um, a doctor, an Argentine named Gustavo, who was one of my favorites, came into my room and said, you need to get walking. Um, you have to be up and walking within 12 hours of the surgery, believe it or not. They just put some new lungs in you, and they want you up and moving. So every day, Gustavo's coming in my room. We need you to walk. You need to get up and walk. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm there, I have to confess, I, the, the pain and the, the, the unbearable thirst, they don't let you drink anything, and, the, and, the, and the, this, the hunger, they had me on a feeding tube and saline drip, but that's the only thing I got to eat. And uh, I got very depressed, you know, I was laying in this bed and I started to feel like I wasn't worthy, like I wasn't going to make it with these lungs, and I was going to waste this opportunity uh, that someone could have had over me. And um, ironically, one day Gustavo came in and <laughs> was yelling at me to walk. And, uh, and I was begging him for some water. I, literally, I was, I was practically in tears. If I wasn't so dehydrated, I would have been crying. <laughs> Just begging him for water. And I said, listen, if you give me water, I'll get up and I'll walk my face off. I'll do 20 laps around this unit tomorrow, I promise. And he said, fine, fine, but if you don't do it, I'm taking the water away. That's <laughs> all right. So I get up the next day, I get my water, and I bang those 20 laps out. And the next day, Gustavo came in and said, that's great. Let's get 30 today. I'll see you later. Thanks, guy. <laughs> so ultimately, I was able to go home. Um, I was able to go home, and I came home on August 1st of 2015, like three weeks ago. Yeah, thank you. But, but the really, you know, I started to feel this, this feeling inside of me, this release, this, this well up, it just welled up inside of me and I felt like when those doctors cut me open and took my lungs out, they removed all of the agony and the pain and the suffering that me and my family had endured and all that was left inside of me was, was hope for my future. Thank you. Our next storyteller tonight um, 
give a warm, warm mosquito welcome to Beth Thonen. I did some, some uh, research on Pandora's box before, you know, when I heard I was going to be telling this story, and um, I'd forgotten what an anti-feminist story that is. It's like, all the bad stuff in the world is the fault of women. Well, a woman, but you know she's standing in for everyone. And that really sucks, and I don't like that. I just, I just needed to get that off my chest. <laughs> um, so, um, 2011 was a really bad year for me. Uh, a lot of terrible things happened, troubles piled up, and um, some of them I still have trouble talking about, but most of the rest of them, for some reason, have to do with cars. And I can talk about those. <laughs> um, the, uh, the executive summary of, uh, of the car story that year was four moving violations, one 30-day license suspension, and both family cars totaled. Now, that sounds really grim, so just remember, this is the part I can talk about and laugh about. <laughs> so, um, uh, I was driving a lot more than usual that year because my father was dying, and I was driving to see him about you know, two or three times a week, and it's 125, is someone hissing? No? <laughs> Sorry, oh, it's the bug spray, sorry. Um, and it's about 125 mile round trip, so I was putting a lot of miles on my car, and, and um, when I drive, I'm usually driving too fast because you get there faster that way. And, um, and so it turns out if you drive a lot more miles at illegal speeds, you get more speeding tickets, who knew? Um, so I'd, I'd gotten, I think, four moving violations in maybe four or five months. Um, so when I saw rear, uh, blue lights in my rearview mirror, I was not in a good mood. So the state cop comes up to my door and asks me if I know why he stopped me, which they often do. And I was like, well, I'm pretty sure I was speeding. And he says, only pretty sure. And he's got kind of an attitude. So I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm kind of pissed already. Um, and I say, well, the car was moving. That's usually a dead giveaway. And now he's pissed. And he makes, I can't remember exactly what he said, but, but the gist of his remark was that I was hormonal. And I just became completely batshit. And I, you know, I, I did not, it was all I could do not to like get out of the car and smack him, but I didn't. Um, but I said, listen, I am a cranky person. I am cranky every damned day. I don't stick to a schedule, and I don't need an excuse. And he was quiet. And it was dark, so I couldn't see him. I couldn't read him. And I'm thinking, geez, I'm about to be charged with contempt of cop, which could be a thing for all I know, even for white people. And, uh, <laughs> and then he says, he surprises me. He says, I shouldn't have said that. I'm like, so I bite back all the snarky remarks that come to my head, and I finally just say, I agree. And then again, he doesn't say anything for a minute, and I'm like looking at a future in which I'm never allowed to drive again, and he finally looks at his watch, and he says, my shift is over in eight minutes. I'm going home. You go home too, slowly. And he walked away. Didn't even get a, a, a warning, but I'd already gotten the other moving violations, which was enough 
to have a license suspension. So I, you know, I had the license suspension. I got my license back. They make you pay for that. Did you know that? That sucks. And uh, and then it was time to get my car inspected. I had an 18-year-old Saturn wagon, which I was very fond of, and it failed the inspection because the windshield was cracked. The windshield was cracked because my brother tried to strap a canoe to the roof, and it turns out if you pull the straps really tight, the roof bends a little bit, but the windshield not so much. <laughs> and they couldn't put on a new one because 18 years old, there's not enough, enough metal in the frame to glue the new windshield to, so my car was totaled by a cracked windshield, courtesy of my brother. Thank you, David. <laughs> I'm still pissed at that, you can tell. Um, so, but I'm a cranky person, right? <laughs> so um, then it was time to go to the Cape, and that was, that was really good because the Cape's always wonderful, and it was wonderful this year too, and we had a good time, and then we were driving home on a Monday morning in August, and there was a fair amount of traffic. We were driving in the other family car, which is a, a minivan, a grand caravan, and um, there was a lot of traffic, and... But we were going pretty fast considering, you know, probably 50, 55, until all of a sudden we weren't. <laughs> And uh, I stood on the brakes, and it looked like I was going to be able to stop in time until I saw something kind of large coming up real fast in my rearview mirror, and I could tell it was going to hit me. And there was a breakdown lane to my left. I was on the left lane, but there was a breakdown lane, and, and then a guardrail, and it was a narrow breakdown lane, but I thought, if I can get in that lane, then when he hits me, I'll keep moving instead of getting squished between him and the car ahead of me, and that seemed like a really good idea. So. I almost made it. Um, when he hit me, I clipped the uh, taillights of the car ahead of me. Um, <laughs> uh <-oh. laughs> and, then, um, uh, and then I hit the guardrail. Somewhere in here, my foot came off the brake. Uh, I bounced off the guardrail and hit the car ahead of the hard car ahead of me. I then hit the guardrail again and hit another car until finally got my foot back on the brake and stopped the car. And, um, and you know, all, all this time, like, Things are going off in my head, like little dollar signs every time I hit something. <laughs> and But another part of my head is saying, ooh, bumper cars. <laughs> Brains are really inappropriate sometimes. So so the, the sum total of this is two totaled cars, one of the cars I sideswiped, plus mine, plus a lot of personal property. We had, you know, we were coming back from two weeks on the Cape, so we had a lot of stuff. The first thing the truck hit was... It was a flatbed tow truck, so it was heavy. Um, it hit the two bikes on the back of the car, and they turned into giant metal pretzels. Um, and it also did some damage to stuff inside the car. Right inside the, the lift gate, we had you know, the usual luggage and a small desktop computer and one of those six-bottle carry bags that you can use to carry your, you know, the contents of your bar around. And so we had you know, gin, vermouth, vodka, a few other things, all in glass bottles. So the impact pushed the bottles into the computer, so there was this big gin bottle-sized dent in the back of it. It was toast. But, so here's the thing. Hope is the thing that's left when everything else is gone. Every bottle was perfect, not a scratch. <laughs> Our next storyteller tonight, Carly Smith. Give it up. Okay, so sorry, um, I really actually don't like public speaking and I didn't intend to win the last story slam, but, so I'm a little nervous. Um, <laughs> but 
I'm sure even the people in the back row can see that I um, was blessed to be born with some pretty prominent eyebrows. Um, <laughs> as a small child, I had these eyebrows. All of my baby pictures have these eyebrows in them. And it's been uh, an uphill battle trying to get them to look like this, which is not excellent, I'm told, by my junior high school students. Um, <laughs> growing up, I had two brothers, so I didn't have the sister to um, say in like the, the mean but necessary way that um, when you grow up and you're like a middle school girl, you're supposed to have like your hair and your head look a certain way, but your hair everywhere else look a different way. Um, so the person who had to do that job was my mom, who's here tonight. So thanks, mom. She got me here. Um, so I think I was in uh, fifth grade, so I was probably like 10, 11 years old, and um, I looked like instead of being related to my family who I think are all attractive people, I could have been related to, to Bert from Sesame Street. I had just basically one eyebrow. Um, and so my mom gently and then more severely uh, dropped some hints and said, okay, next time I make a hairdresser appointment, I'm gonna take you in and we're gonna have your eyebrows waxed. And to 11-year-old me, nothing sounded more barbaric than heating up some wax to like a lava consistency and then someone's gonna pour it on my face and rip it off. So I didn't think in my 11 years I had done anything to deserve that. Um, but apparently what I did was be born a girl and that's why I deserved it. Uh, so I was 11. Um, I had had 11 years to be smarter than all the other women who had come before me and my own family especially. Um, so I knew how the world worked by then. Um, and I got invited to a pool party. Um, I, think it was, I think it was June. I got invited to an end of the year pool party. Uh, and there were some pretty attractive fifth grade boys that were going to be there and I needed to look great. Uh, so rather than take my mom up on her generous offer to take me in and do the job the right way, um, I, found a, I found a little tube of uh, a bottle of chemicals that some may be familiar with called Nair. Uh, <laughs> and I read the back, I read the directions. It seemed pretty straightforward. Um, you know, you, you put it on, you leave it for two minutes and then try it. You leave it for a maximum of five minutes and then they don't describe what happens after that. But <laughs> anyone who's ever used it knows. Um, it burns your skin off. So I was, I was a, a rule follower and I, I read the directions. I, this is something I can handle. So um, I remember looking at my, so my face in the mirror uh, <laughs> And I, I looked at also some magazine pictures and I said, okay, so this is how a woman's eyebrows are supposed to look. And then I looked back at myself and thought, okay, I've got some work to do here. Uh, so, so 
started with the, the main offense, which was the unibrow. And uh, I put a little nair in the middle of my eyebrows right here just to, you know, test the waters. Um, waited a couple minutes to my, like, uh, little play school <laughs> egg timer, which was as scientific as it got, and waited a few minutes and then wiped it off with warm water uh, with a terry cloth towel, as specified in the directions, and uh, lo and behold, hey, it worked. So now I had two eyebrows, which was something new to work with. Um, so the, the next step was like, okay, I'm going to open the box and get a little more adventurous because now I had a distinct style I was after. And I knew that like the, uh, the Tiger Beat supermodels was who I needed to be looking like for the pool party. So um, I put a little bit of nair right underneath and a little bit over and I waited a few minutes and I wiped it off with the warm water and I was looking pretty good. The problem was, in comparison of myself to the, to the magazine, the problem was that my eyebrows were still like bushy looking where everybody else looked so well groomed. So I thought, I thought, all right, I think I understand by now. I mean, I've done this twice with success. I understand how these chemical works. Uh, I got it. So I spread some on the rest of my eyebrows and thought, wait, hear me out. It made sense when I was 11. I thought, leave it on for two minutes, take some off. If I only leave it on for one minute, nair must work that it just whittles down the hairs. Until, and if I could catch it in time, it won't take the whole hair off. So I very carefully timed it out and was like, okay, that's about halfway, about half the hair should be gone. I took the warm washcloth very quickly, wiped it off, and I looked at myself in the mirror, and I saw my 11-year-old face with no eyebrows to speak of. So then the jig was up. I had to call my mom. I had to escape the house, escape the Snickers from my dad and my brothers with a hooded sweatshirt. It's June, the end of June. Um, and for the subsequent two months, I had to carry around a brown eyebrow pencil and draw in my own eyebrows, which I got pretty good at. And if hope is all that's left in the box, I guess the hope for me was that my eyebrows would have grown back by the next summer because 11-year-old girls with pencil and eyebrows don't get to go to pool parties. So, <laughs> thank you. story of the evening. Please give a big round of applause to Jerry Riley. So about 17 or 18 years ago, uh, my wife and I decided uh, to become foster parents. A man, oh man, is that a Pandora's box. So we, we took our last class on a Saturday to give us a certificate. Congratulations, your foster parents went home. Monday I'm at work, the phone rings. Mari says, uh, they, they, they just called, uh, they got a kid for us. I was like, what, what's going on? Said it's a 15-year-old girl, her name is Tara. And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. We, we talked about little kids. We were gonna, you know, we said, you know, little kids. And she said, I know, I tried to tell them, but they have this girl and there's no place to put her in. And we, we talked about it, we said, well, why, let's do it. So I come home, I get there just as the social workers arriving with Tara. She's uh, 15 years old, tiny, 
um, really feisty, you can tell, and very funny. And uh, you know, you can tell she's going to be a handful uh, and totally lovable. So she comes in, social worker leaves. Um, you know, we give her dinner, we hang out, and she's you know pretty relaxed given the situation. Uh, end of dinner, we say, okay, there's a couple of rules we should talk about. Not too many rules, but you got to follow them. The first one is, and this one should be really easy. You got to go to school every day. And there's only four more days left to school, so that should be an easy one. She kind of laughs about this. So anyway, we hang out. We, she goes to bed. We wake up in the morning. We give her breakfast. Off she goes to school. Now, she has to catch the bus. She's, their school's halfway across the city. Takes the bus to the Orange Line, and, and off she goes. So she gets on the bus. I go to work. About 10.30, my wife calls up. The school just called. Tara's not there. I was like, what? She goes, she's, she, she's hooking. She's hooking school. I'm thinking, this is, our, we're, this is our first day as foster parents. We can't have, like, our kid hooking school. <laughs> And she goes, I know, and so we're talking about what we're going to do when she comes home, how we're going to, you know, there's going to be like a punishment, was she grounded, and we're thinking like, we never had kids, and now all of a sudden it's like teenage discipline issues, and like, this is getting crazy. <laughs> so anyway, so that's it. And she said, well, she'll be home after school, and she won't know she's busted, and then we'll deal with it. So I go back to work, and then um, sometime in the afternoon, my wife calls up, said, I'm really getting worried. She should have been here an hour ago. I I'm thinking we should call the police and report her missing. And I said, well, she's not like missing, like milk carton missing. You know, and, and, and she goes, I know, but it's like, you know, we're responsible for it, and we don't know where she's been since, you know, she left the house this morning. And I go, yeah, I guess. So she calls the Boston police, gets this guy. He's really nice. She, he explains the situation, or she explains the situation to him, and he says, don't worry, don't worry. We'll put out the word. If anybody sees her, they'll just bring her home. There won't be any repercussions. I said, okay. So I get off, uh, you know, she uh, tells me this. I get off the phone. Ten minutes later, she calls up. The police just called back. She's been arrested. I said, what? She's, I'm like, what did she do? And he's going, nothing serious. She was hanging out with her friends in the, in the train station and being annoying. And they, and they kept chasing them out. And they were back. And, they, and eventually they picked them up. And uh, we have to go pick her up at the police station. So I'll be right home. So I come home. By the time I get home, she says, the police call back. Um, they're going to have to keep her overnight. And I said, what? Like, what? what? And, and I'm going, this can't be. I mean, she's 15 years old. And I said, I know. And it turns out, because she's on probation, and because she was truant, and because I reported her missing, um, now these all add up that they can't release her, and they have to arraign her in the morning at court. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. We're, like, we, we, we haven't been foster parents 24 hours, and our kid's, like, <laughs> spending the night in jail? And I'm like, what are we going to do? And my wife says, I said, what are we going to do? And my wife says, we should go out to eat. And I said, what, what, what do you, and she said, don't think about it. She's safe. Um, there's nothing we can do until 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. And, and this is the last night we're going to be going out in a long time. So I think, like, you're right, you're right. So we go out to this really nice restaurant. We kind of splurge. We go out. We have a great time. We're we, it's the funniest thing, and we're feeling terribly guilty. It's like we're not even 24 hours into it, and our kid is spending the night in jail. And we're living it up, you know? So, uh, so the following morning, we go to the court. We go in. We explain, like, we don't know what's going on. And talk to some guy who works there. And he gives us, tells us what's happening. And he hears that we're brand-new foster parents. He thinks this is the funniest thing he's ever heard. Pretty soon, people are pointing. And they're like, oh, there's one of those over there. So we go into the, the, the courtroom. They start calling the cases. The first, like, three cases, serious cases, like armed robbery, a burglary, a DWI. And then they call her case. They clear the courtroom because she's a minor. Everybody leaves, and the side door opens up, and there's Tara. She's tiny. She's wearing an over, like two sizes too big orange jumpsuit, prisoner jumpsuit. She's got her hand, handcuffed and her feet cuffed, and she's shackled, and she shuffles through the door. I'm like, oh, my God. And uh, the judge was great. The judge sort of was very stern with her and tried to you know, get, uh, make her 
understand this is like she's heading down a really dangerous path and they kind of release her to our custody. She goes in and changes and she comes out and doesn't say a word. We walk out of the courtroom. We go all the way across the big lobby. Doesn't say a word. We walk out the door and as soon as we hit the stairs, she says, I didn't do nothing. <laughs> and uh, that was the start. That was, that, was when, that was the day we opened up this Pandora's box. Now, once you open up Pandora's box, there is no going back. And it went on for years and years. We had many, many foster kids. Uh, from little babies to teenagers and, uh, you know, all different ages, sometimes two, three, four at a time. It was, the, it, was the, it, was, it was the hardest thing I think I've ever done and the most rewarding and the most soul-destroying and, and also the most exhilarating, and I'd, I'd recommend it to all of you. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, you know, no matter how, I mean, in the years after with all these kids, many, many things happened. We went through all sorts of stuff, but no matter how crazy things got, we would always console ourselves with, with, well, at least they're not spending the night in jail. Yeah. Last story before intermission. Welcome Kevin Gallagher. So I want to take you back in time, a millennium ago, when people like me, gay people, were an abomination unto the Lord and a perversion in society. So I call these days the glory days. Because there really was something really lovely about the fact that straight people had no idea what to do with you, so therefore didn't know what to do with you. And for the most part, they just sort of left us alone. And I sort of, I miss that now as we move on. Um, I'm getting used to it, but I do miss it. So in 2000, Vermont got the civil unions law. And my partner, Michael, was smitten with the idea of marriage, unfortunately. Uh, at that point, we had been together 14 years and uh, survived two mortgages, which in my mind, a mortgage is a much more serious commitment than a marriage. Uh, like, really, I'm going to get into hundreds and thousands of dollars of debt with somebody who can't even pick their clothes up off the bedroom floor. <laughs> so I, you know, my father's been married nine times and has only had one mortgage, and I've had one partner and multiple mortgages. So I do think it's the mortgages that make the difference. So it was a summer day, my 40th birthday, actually, and uh, we were at Shelburne Farms in Burlington, Vermont for my birthday for dinner. For those of you who know, that's an old Vanderbilt estate, so we like to go and pretend that we were Vanderbilts. <laughs> and uh, he proposed to me. And like, I was surprised. Like, it's, it's actually sort of weird. You think after 14 years, you'd kind of expect it, especially when your state gets civil unions. But I was like surprised. And I did like all the things that straight people do. I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe it. Yes, I love you so much. Yes, I'll marry you. I can't believe you're asking me to marry you. And then I wanted to like call my mother, you know, and, and tell her I was engaged. You know, it's like, oh, I get so. So, so this was Pandora's struggle because now we began to suffer like all the straight people before us have suffered. <laughs> With the questions. When are you getting married? Where are you having the ceremony? Am I invited? Are you having it catered? Are you having a band or a DJ? 
You're not going to do one of those lesbian potluck things at sunrise on some mountaintop. So it was stressful enough for me that I just told people we weren't going to get married until our 20th anniversary. I wanted to buy some time. So the year of our 20th anniversary comes, and what do we do? We get another mortgage. Because that's how we roll. And so we bought this postage stamp size piece of property on Lake Champlain, and that was going to be our project. And so the first April that we were there, late April, um, we had a really fun task, read between the lines, of putting in 70 feet of dock into a very cold lake, read, fight for several hours. <laughs> and so we finished putting the dock in, and I realized my engagement ring is gone. And it was a clatter ring, for those of you who are familiar with Irish rings. And so I'm like, oh my god, Michael, my ring's gone. And I realized that my hands had been so cold and so shriveled for so many hours and pulling docking into the water that it just slipped off. Well, I was devastated. He was beside himself. And I sort of thought, is this an omen? You know, because I'm not straight, so I don't know, like, what the rule, like, I don't know if, like, someone loses their engagement ring. Is that, like, a sign, you know, that the marriage isn't going to make it? I'm like, what does this mean, you know, when you lose your engagement ring? So... In 2011, seven years later, it was October, and we had the great task of taking the dock out, which we do every fall. And so we're in the lake pulling uh, the docking system out. And Michael bends over and says, oh my God, it's your ring. And I, I look at it, and it, like, it was my ring, but it wasn't silver anymore. It was all black, and it had like slime on it from the lake. And you have to know, during this seven-year period, Lake Champlain had the highest water level in 200 years. We had a drought. We had Tropical Storm Irene. There are times when we have three feet of shale um, in front of our seawall, and then times when we just have a sandy beach. And so I look at it, and I'm like, did you plant this here? And he goes, yeah, yeah, Kevin, that's what I did. Yeah. Seven years ago for no reason, while you were sleeping, I took your ring off for shits and giggles and hid it. And then today, for no reason, I got it out and I blackened it up and I put slime on it and I pretended to find it in the lake. So I said, well, you don't have to be this sarcastic about it. And I said, well, you know what this means? This means that our love is going to last forever. Like, we're meant to be together. And he's like, ugh. He's like, I shouldn't have told you I found it. So next spring will be our 30th anniversary. We're still not married. Um, yeah. But Beyonce was right. You know, if you like it, then you better put a ring on it. And... Um, uh, to honestly, I'm not like sure he's the one. I have to like, I need to, I need to wait and see if perhaps something better comes along. Um, but you know, like Pandora, um, you know, we all know the story of Pandora was about hope. And so um, 
I'd like to think that it was the journey, it's the journey, not the jewelry, that makes a difference in a relationship. Thanks. Okay, our next storyteller tonight is, give a round of applause to Kate Johnson. Hi, good evening. Um, the story I have to tell starts out sad, so I already followed some of those guidelines. I was thinking about this when I was driving down here. Um, I drove from work. I work in Fall River, so I had it was just around the corner to come down. And um, <laughs> I had this really great outfit planned, but then when I got here, I realized there was only porta-potties. So I ended up in my work clothes. So just so you know, I could have looked a lot better than this. But anyway, okay, so here's my story. My brother committed suicide around this time of year, 16 years ago. And before that happened, you know, I was living in a bubble life. And um, I was always, and I still am, you know, very much like delusional in my ideas of how things are going to go. So anyway, my life kind of turned all around. But um, it was two weeks before um, my son was born that that happened. So um, it was a really weird time. And nobody wanted to talk about it. So um, I had created this sort of fantasy life for me and my baby. And it involved a lot of things that are not really realistic when it comes to babies. And one of them is that I wanted everything to be all natural. So I met with a midwife. I signed a contract, you know, about um, no pain meds because I don't want my baby to have any chemicals. Um, also, I didn't want my baby to have anything plastic. So at the baby shower, I told everybody, and I made sure my mother wrote it on the thing, only wooden toys or cloth. That's it. So... You could see, well, you know, I'm, I'm like in this fantasy land of me and the baby, and I'm in a white linen dress with a parasol, right? I actually bought a pram. I'm not kidding. I lived in an apartment on the second floor. Before the baby was even born, I couldn't get that thing up and down the stairs myself. It was like huge. The wheels were like this big. And I just pictured myself in the park with the parasol, you know, and then the baby in white. And isn't it wonderful? Well, so what happened was... I guess I had stored up a lot of angst about the thing with my brother. And so uh, when a time came, you know, time to go to the birthing center, um, and it looked like a little inn, it was so nice, and they had a hot tub, and they had all these ice chips and everything great. And I got there, and all of a sudden I started to be in pain, right? Whole different person emerged. This wasn't the mother that was in the park. And, um, so I'm getting snippy, you know, and my husband at the time, he's like, what about the ice chips, babe? I'm like, you can take those ice chips. You know what I'm going to tell you? Oh, what about the hot tub, babe? I'm like, you go in the effing hot tub. I'm like, this sucks. So I'm walking around, walking around, walking around. No midwife. First of all, the midwife thing is like a total myth. I'm sorry if there's any midwives out there, but they don't like hold your hand the whole time. Like I thought she'd be stroking my hair. Oh, honey. It's so wonderful, and you're, you know, and you're feminine, and you're beautiful, and you're doing everything. No, 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 no. She was, like, sleeping in some other room somewhere. I didn't even see her. 
I'm like, where are you? And so I'm yelling for the midwife. So I'm getting really angry and agitated, and I start to kind of forget what's going on. So I'm in the bed now. I don't know how I got in the bed. I'm in the bed, <laughs> and there's a rail in the bed, and I'm gripping, and I'm like in the fetal position. I'm gripping the side rail, right? And I'm just screaming, just screaming like animal gut screams, <laughs> loud. The nurse came over to me, Mrs. Johnson, you're frightening the other patients. I said, you know what? It just so happens that I'm dying. So I'm sorry if I'm gonna be a little loud on my way out. So I'm gripping the rail, she's trying to get me to calm down and I'm like this, you know what, if you, if I said, if I could take my hands off of this, I would. And I would put them right around your neck, right? So just everything just haywire crazy. And I kept thinking, and I don't know why, I kept thinking if I could just get to the White Hen. White Hen is like Cumberland Farms or 7-Eleven. I kept thinking if I could just get there and get a candy bar, I th I'll be all right. You know, that was like my fantasy. But I forgot what was going on, you know, and I was just pff, dying. I thought, well, this is it for me. You know, this is how people die. This is it. So, you know, after a while, the nurse says to me, congratulations, it's a boy. <laughs> well, I looked at her and I said, what? She said, congratulations, it's a boy. And I'm looking at my husband, and I'm looking, you know, and I'm thinking about the white hen, and I'm like, you know what? I said, it's a baby? She said, yeah, you had a baby. I said, I had a baby? <gasps> and then I had this wonderful, amazing, beautiful, perfect baby put in my arms. And... Um, the hope, you know, the hope remains. That's it, thanks. Okay, big round of applause for Terrence Noonan. So before I start my story, I just want to say that Caitlin and Vanessa have done an amazing job. They putting this together with Provincetown and Prez Hall has been fantastic. They do this without any acclaim. They're absolutely fantastic. So uh, just give it up for them. Thank you. And not to sound too much like Scott Brown, but they're both single, okay? <laughs> I promised them I would make them t-shirts that say hetero. Okay? That's in the works. Thank you. All right, now hold on one second. I'm just going to re enter for the story. <laughs> the story of Pandora makes absolutely no sense. It is as if a couple thousand years ago, the Greeks were like, no, that's far too, far too depressing. 
why don't we give it a Disney ending? Okay, like at the end, after all the calamities come out and curses and pestilence and all that, why don't we have hope just mysteriously appear at the end? It doesn't work that way. It never works that way. There is only depression and death. <laughs> That's all there is, okay? I wish I could be happier, <laughs> but I can't be. So here's a little story about Pandora's box. I was thinking about telling this in tripartite, but I don't have enough time and they always buzz me off. My wife is the most beautiful woman that has ever graced this earth. For those of you who know her, apparently two of you do. Yes, yes, she actually is. Um, she's like Mother Teresa. And I do stupor. Um, sorry, kids. I do criminal defense, and I have a very terrible specialty. And... Um, Unfortunately, I spent a lot of time in prison with people. The obvious metaphor of boxes. And I met this guy years ago. And I believed in him. He had already done about 32 years in prison for some pretty terrible crimes. The lingua franca of his family was violence. When he was eight years old, it was Christmas morning, there was a fight between his mother and his father, he and his family, his brothers and sisters were by the Christmas tree, and his father shot him in the head. Uh, his father shot his mother in the head. His father went to prison for a while, the mother didn't die. They got back together. This is a stable family relationship. He grows up in a very terrible way. And when he's about 17, he's in front of a judge and a judge gives him that sort of Bakhtinian construct. You can either go to jail or you can go into the military. So he chooses the military. He comes back, things don't work out well for him. And I meet him years later. He's committed atrocious offenses. But I meet with him and I talk with him and it's, you know, I've been appointed to represent him but it's more pastoral than anything else. And my wife, my wife who is very interested in the type of work that I do says, I should, I should meet this guy. And I say, okay, you know, so we go to prison and I get her in and I lie, and I say that she works for me. And she goes in and we, we speak with this individual. And it's been, he's been in for about 28 years at this point. And he's, he's helping other prisoners. He seems to have understood, for example, the crime that he committed was 
abhorrent. He raped two women. At knife point, he broke into their apartment and he raped both of them. He was 22 years old, this was in the 80s, and he had no idea what a lesbian was. And he said to me later, I didn't know. I didn't know that women could love women. I didn't know that men could love men. I didn't know that. Growing up in the family that I did, in the place that I did, I had no idea. I understand that now. That always comes so quickly. So I worked with him because at this point it was 28 years later. And I helped him. And I helped him through the parole process because I believed in him, because I had opened up that box, because I could see that he was trapped. And we got him paroled. And within six months, unfortunately, I got a phone call from a friend of mine who said, Terrence, you should watch the news. And I said, I don't, no, I, don't, I don't watch the news. I don't do that stuff. He said, no, watch the news. And there he was. And he had killed his roommate. And not only killed him, not only killed him, he had hacksawed him into pieces, put him in a bag, and put him by an elementary school in a garden and called his son. And this is where hope comes in. Because I didn't believe in hope. I didn't believe in any of that stuff. His son is the one who made the phone call. His son is the one who wanted to end that cycle. His son is the one who wanted to end that lingua franca of violence. And I apologize for depressing absolutely all of you, but that's the truth. There is no happy ending. There is no hope. All the calamities that come out, that's all we have. And the best that we can do is the occasional Disney ending. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, the next storyteller, oh, Dan Wolf, come on up. So before, before I start, I just wanna say, um, I wanna validate the Nair thing, okay? Total validation, huge head of hair, didn't know what to do. What? <laughs> Got it. Um, the other thing is, my favorite saying in politics, for those who don't know, I'm the state senator for the best state senate district in the, in the whole freaking world. That would be this state senate district. One of my favorite lines from a presidential debate, remember the guy who ran with Ross Perot, uh, Admiral Stockdale? Who am I? Why am I here? 
So that's the story tonight, okay? I grew up in a Jewish household, and for some reason, instead of like sending me to synagogue and getting bar mitzvah, I went to a Quaker school for 13 years. I am completely freaking confused, okay? But the values in the Jewish household, values of education, values of right and wrong, and then on top of that, all of the Quaker stuff, pacifism, do unto others, all of that stuff, was just totally steeped in me. So by the time I went to college, I gravitated towards those things that any Quaker Jew would gravitate towards, <laughs> which would be things like Marxism, Hegelian dialectics, and all of those things. So, hey, call me weird. Then I married a Catholic woman who practices Buddhism, and we go to a Universalist Unitarian church. If, if that's not about Pandora's box, while I was at school, I was, as I was learning this stuff, I was actually arrested twice for civil disobedience. I was raised well in my household and in the school that I went to. And I will say that it seems to me, as I went through that education and then took this bizarre step into politics, that what this is all about is undoing all of those things that Pandora's box let out. And by the way, one of the things it let out is misogyny, right? Because isn't it weird that it's like Eve and Pandora and these women? I mean, as a guy, that just seems really fucked up too. So uh, anyhow, that is the history of government. It's the history of civilization. To put those things back in the box that we never wanted to let out. Injustice, oppression, exploitation, sexism, racism, all of those things that should have never come out of that box, but we've been trying to put them back in. And when I went through college and got arrested for civil disobedience and fought for the Equal Rights Amendment and thought we were fighting poverty in the cities and we were going to win all this stuff, I knew that 30 or 40 years later we would have had all this stuff licked. And then what happened? Somebody stepped in and reopened that Pandora's box really wide. And that would have been the marriage of Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. Because I got to tell you, I keep trying to look back and think, what the hell got in the way of what we thought we were doing in the 60s and 70s? So I woke up after 30 years as a business person, after marrying the most wonderful person, 29 years and counting, raising three daughters, asking, what the fuck? Because you look at all of those things that we were doing in the 60s and 70s, and you look now at where we are, and we got to get involved. And that's where hope comes in. And I'm not talking about the Barack Obama t-shirt type of hope. I'm talking about the hope that we were all raised to believe in, not the hope in a system, capitalism, democracy, but the hope and belief in each other. Because that really is the bond. The Quakers believe in the inner light. Buddhists call it that connection, Eastern religion, that connection to the world and the environment we live in. But it's there. So it has been an amazing journey for me. The little Jewish, Quaker, Marxist, capitalist, politician, really, really screwed up guy. Maybe you should put me back in the box, but don't give up on hope. Terrence, that was a tough act to follow, but I'm going to say uh, I want to bring light back onto this stage and hope back onto this stage. That's the story. Stick with it, folks. Let's work together and kick ass. Thank you. <laughs> last, potentially last, potentially second to, la uh, second to last story, Helen Jacobson.
So this, so I am last, but I'm going to start with a story about me when I was very little. And I, it was my first learning about what I think Pandora's box is, the evil in the world. And I was too little, I wasn't yet three years old, when I went with my mother and sister to Eastern Europe to join my father, who had been working in immigration there post-Second World War. Most people were leaving Eastern Europe. We came from the United States to go there, and it was hard to get there. Two planes, a train, no food, and we arrived. And I wasn't yet three years old, and this man who was my father, who I hadn't seen for over a year, greeted us with this huge German Shepherd dog. He was bigger than I was, and I was very afraid of him. However, that dog became my protector. From then on, my father never could yell at me. He couldn't spank me, because people still spanked kids then. And when he'd raise his hand, the dog would jump up and go, Rrr, and pull it down. <laughs> so I had some good times then. However, uh, I was little, and I was allowed to stay up at night as my parents, who worked all day in immigration and getting, taking care of refugees, people coming from camps, people coming from the woods, people wanting to leave and go anywhere after World War II, and all the people that worked with them and the artists and the musicians and the people who came over at night, our house was like a mecca for it, and sat around and talked and shared stories of the horrors that they had heard all day long. And they also listened to music and drank and ate. And I was allowed to sit there. In those days, kids weren't allowed to talk much, but we were allowed to sit there. And I heard these stories, and I didn't understand them. And I started to have nightmares about them and about the people I heard about. And soon after, my, we moved to Hungary, where their work continued. And my mother, who was always in the forefront of finding odd schools, sent me to a nursery school uh, that followed Adler's theories. And therefore, when we slept, we woke up, and there were graduate students sitting there who said, what did you dream about? And, <laughs> and took notes on what we dreamed about. And I told them, I, there are people, and they're hungry, and they're in line, and they have no food, and they have no houses, and they have nowhere to go. And they, they thought, wow, maybe Helen lives that way. So they paid a home visit <laughs> to my house. And my, my mother said, no, no, these are the stories that she hears every night. This has, we have a house. We have food. We're OK. And actually, we were very OK compared to the rest of the world at that time. Anyway, the, I still absorbed most of these stories, and they stayed inside me for many, a long, long time, along with many, some things that happened to us. Um, for example, uh, our doorbell would ring, and a man would be there, and he would say, I want to see, I heard there are two Jewish children who are still alive. Can I see them? And we would be trotted out to this person. And then he would say, he would take out a little piece of paper he had hidden in his mouth or somewhere and say, she looks just like my daughter, doesn't she? And my mother said, there was nothing on the paper anymore. 
And she would say, yes, she does. And then she would quietly close the door. I wonder at age four and five what I thought about all those things, but nobody ever really asked me. Anyway, when I was six, we had to leave Hungary because American women and children were no longer safe. The country was much too communist at that point, and we moved to Chicago waiting for my father. But I want to go back to the dog story. I used to ride on that dog. I used to put, he was so big I could get on. And I used to make garlands of flowers and wind them around his head. And I loved that dog named Lord. When we left for Chicago, I couldn't take him with me, I was told. He had to stay back in Hungary. And finally, my father got out and joined us. And of course, our first question was, well, where's the dog? And he said, I couldn't bring him. I'm sorry. Year, I was going to a Chicago public school. It was first grade. My English wasn't very good. And I realized no one wanted to know about my stories or my dreams or any of that anymore. So I stopped thinking about all those things, and I moved on to become a true American. But many years later, I was in high school, and I asked my father, how did you get that dog? What, wh where did, tell me the story again of Lord. And he said, well, a man came, came into his office with the dog and said, uh, he had been hiding in the woods, and a Nazi found him and was about to shoot him dead when Lord jumped up and killed the Nazi. And I said uh, to my father, didn't you worry about having a dog who killed someone with your little children? And he said, Helen, he was a Nazi. And I said, <laughs> I said, but dad, how... How would he, and then my father said, he protected us, he protected you, and he left the room. And to me, I thought about it for a while, and I think to me, Lord represented the evil, the good, and the hope in Pandora's box. Thank you. Uh, a, a vote in before you go? Yeah. We're gonna come around with these silver buckets and we're gonna collect the names. But anyway, everyone's gonna come up. They're gonna say their names clearly. The first name, you're gonna write their first name on the piece of paper that you have. And they're gonna just say one line that's gonna remind you of their story. So here we go. Uh, my name is Carly and my eyebrows finally grew back. My name is Kevin and it might be the journey, not the jewelry that makes the difference. My name is Kate, and um, it's the birth of my son. Uh, my name is Everett, and please be an organ donor. My name is Dan, Hope in Politics. My name is Beth, not a single bottle broke. My name is Jerry. I didn't do nothing. My name is Helen, and I loved a dog who killed someone. My name is Terrence. I told the most depressing story of the evening. Thank you. Yes.
Um, before we announce our runner-up and our winner, we just want to take a chance to acknowledge all of these storytellers, some of whom are only second-time storytellers. The first time they did it in one was their first time. Takes a lot of bravery and vulnerability. And let's give them all a huge round of applause because they were all awesome. All awesome. So, our... Ooh, it was so close. It was so close for so many of you, actually. Close. Yes. So, um, our second place, right? Are we doing third place? Second, second place runner-up tonight, for whom we have this amazing yo-yo. <laughs> so you can contemplate your next story, is Jerry Riley. <laughs> Okay, and our winner for this evening, Pandora's Box Story Slam, $100 gift certificate to the Blackfish Restaurant, is Helen Jacobson. We don't want to take any more of your night up. Please listen to all these stories and the rest of our season on SoundCloud.com, Mosquito Story Slam. Thank you for your support. This couldn't happen without you. So much fun. We'll see you next year. Thank you, our sponsor, Bubbles. Thank you, Payamet. Thank you, volunteers. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast 2015 summer season. The Mosquito is produced by Tidal Theater Company, Kate Langstaff, and Vanessa Vardabedian, and is sponsored by WOMR 92.1 FM and Bubbles by the Bay Restaurant in Provincetown. Find your next opportunity to join us live and tell your story at facebook.com slash Mosquito Story Slam or via Twitter at Mosquito Story. Listen to all Mosquito podcasts on soundcloud.com slash Mosquito Story Slam. Tell your friends, take a chance, and bite it live.